Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I'm your host. And today's episode will be continuing on with the Beatitudes. I would assume we are going to finish them up in this episode and then continue on with Sermon on the Mount from there. So we left off talking about uh, the Beatitudes related to mourning and meekness and seeking righteousness. And we are picking up today with Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. And so let's just go ahead and get started with that. The verse, chapter 5, verse 7 of Matthew is, How blessed are those who show mercy, for they will be shown mercy. Now, um, these ones will be relatively quick, but uh, this kind of brings together a few of the previous Beatitudes and puts them into practice, because to show mercy is to put pity and mourning into practice. It's the act of living out the love thy neighbor commandment through meekness and in recognition of one's own unrighteousness. So it kind of ties all of these together. The prayer to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, or forgive uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, however, uh, whatever translation you use for the Lord's Prayer, that is a recognition that we show mercy to others and ask for mercy from God. This is really just a loop, though, since the reason we show mercy to others is because we are imitating God's mercy to us. We are to show mercy to others as they sin against us and also as they may cause us physical harm. This is the example Yeshua lives out and tells us to imitate, and we are told by Paul and others to imitate Christ in his life as well. At the same time, some show mercy in the sense of not standing up for God's principles. If someone in the church is a professing believer but is living in sin, the proper response is not to uh, show mercy in quotes by leaving them alone and not confronting them. We are to we are not to show mercy by saying individuals can continue in their sinful ways and still be accepted by God. That's really overall not a merciful thing to do. We are rather to speak the truth in love. We show mercy by not seeking retribution not by allowing sinful behavior in God's kingdom. Those are two different things. And recognize that I'm talking about within the church, within the body of believers, the kingdom of God. I am not referring to people outside of the kingdom, non-believers. That is a totally different issue. So again, like all of these other Beatitudes, it can be taken as a positive or a negative, that it's good to show mercy uh, as Christ did, or it could be a bad thing to show mercy, because um, if you are not standing up for God's truth, and uh, you are saying that that is a merciful thing to do, well, overall, you're just wrong. So that's kind of the issue there. Uh, I do not think, at least in this Beatitude, that that is something that is also being stated at the same time. Whereas in the others, there are multiple ways of interpreting each beatitude, and there still are multiple ways of interpreting this one, uh, but that is not one of them. Showing mercy by not standing up for God's truth and allowing sin within the kingdom of God without calling it out, that is not truly a merciful thing. That is just something some people think of as merciful, but it is truly not. So some of the main purposes of the state are to live out the opposite role of showing mercy. They are to 
enact punishment, seek revenge, and even prosecute victimless crimes in order to deter certain behaviors. Uh, That's what the state does. This is done through force and violence, whether physical in the case of confinement and execution, or against one's rights and property in the case of restrictions or uh, confiscation or fines. Well, mercy may at times be shown by an individual judge or other member of the bureaucracy, the state as a whole does not act according to the rules of mercy described by Christ. Whether you believe this is necessary or not is really beside the point. We are commanded to live according to this principle and extend it throughout the land as we spread his kingdom. Regardless of the secular practicalities, our individual calling is to promote mercy, not punishment. Consider God's response to Cain's act of murder that did deserve death by God's own definition. This would be Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For what I desire is mercy, not sacrifices, knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Um, so, uh, yes, that was not a direct relation to Cain, but I'm saying consider that Cain murdered his brother, and by God's definition, the deserving punishment is death. But... God did not give him death. And uh, the same would be true of the adulterous woman that Yeshua runs into uh, where he, she got caught in the act and uh, the punishment for that is stoning to death. But did Yeshua say, yes, we should follow the law and stone her to death? Uh, no, actually, he, uh, through a various series of statements, basically showed mercy and in a sense said that showing her mercy is more important, that is the greater good, that is the better thing, than following the letter of the law. And there's way more about the law that I have covered and will cover, and so that is not worth getting into. But the point is, again, what is said in Isaiah, for he desires mercy, not sacrifices. It's not following the law for what the law says, because that's what it says, and I'm following every word and every letter, every jot, every tittle. No, that's not the point. The The point is that you are living in accordance to God's principles. And mercy is a very big one. And so uh, that is something that is uh, being promoted above these other things, like retribution, uh, like punishment, like all of the things the state does. So we should recognize that by God's standards, we all deserve death. We all commit crimes against others in the eyes of the state as well as in the eyes of God. The response when offenses are committed against us should be one of mercy. This means to forgive rather than seek punishment, not demanding the state to enact retribution. Violence and evil only end when they are replaced with love. This is our role, to respond to evil in love. Now, again, as I mentioned, there are practical reasons why one might say the state must enforce various laws and regulations. The state must enact retribution and uh, violence and punishment and all of these things. And uh, I guess the biblical reason for that would be, uh, well, look at what the law says. The law says that, you know, this crime is punishable by death. Well, as I've pointed out many times before, uh, the law actually had no centralized government. So if you want to go that route, that was the entire village that carried things out with multiple witnesses and elders and all this kind of stuff. And that is not the system we live in today. Uh, 
But you could also point to the practical reasons of, you know, we can't let crime run rampant. We can't let rapists and murderers go free. We have to do something, that kind of stuff. And yes, there are plenty of good practical arguments for that kind of thing. But as we are looking at this beatitude, and as we are focusing on biblical principles, uh, those practicalities, those practical arguments don't really apply. Unfortunately, maybe for you, depending on who you are, uh, that's just not an argument that could be biblically made very well. And uh, what I am trying to focus on is what are the biblical principles and what are we being told according to Scripture, which is different than what you think will practically work in modern society. Those are, at times, different things. Uh, The Bible does say that, uh, that God's wisdom looks like foolishness to man. And many times it does. But uh, I think most of you would agree that usually it doesn't end up actually being foolishness, even if it seems like that at first glance. Now, uh, let me read over another verse here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. How dare one of you with a complaint against another go to court before pagan judges and not before God's people? Don't you know that God's people are going to judge the universe? If you are going to judge the universe... Are you incompetent to judge these minor manners? Don't you know that we will judge angels, not to mention affairs of everyday life? So if you require judgments about matters of everyday life, why do you put them in front of men who have no standing in the messianic community? I say, shame on you. Can it be that there isn't one person among you wise enough to be able to settle a dispute between brothers? Instead, a brother brings a lawsuit against another brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, if you are bringing lawsuits against each other, it is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves wrong and cheat, and you do it to bring you do it to your own brothers. Don't you know that unrighteous people will have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't delude yourselves. People who engage in sex before marriage, who worship idols, who engage in sex after marriage with someone other than their spouse, who engage in active or passive homosexuality, who steal, who are greedy, who get drunk, who assail people with contemptuous language, who rob, none of them will share in the kingdom of God. Some of you used to do these things, but you have cleansed yourselves. You have been set apart for God." You have come to be counted righteous through the power of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, and the Spirit of our God. So again, Paul's making the same point I've been making, that uh, the state is not the answer. And especially as Christians, we should be dealing with other Christians, and we should be focusing on God's principles and God's law, not asking the state to carry out various retributions and responses. And when you do this, when you focus on God's principles, then it is actually better to be wronged, even if the other person is the one in the wrong and you are the one being harmed. It is better to accept that, to show mercy, to let it go, than to bring that to a secular court. That's exactly what he says there. So, I mean, again, if you're going to follow what the Bible says, that that's it. There's not much more I can say about that. So the next beatitude is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. How blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. One who is pure in heart 
is free from intentional sin, disloyalty, and ulterior motives. Uh, There is an implication throughout Scripture that a truly pure heart, heart is not only clean on the inside, but also actively doing and intending good. When we are single-minded in commitment to the kingdom of God and inwardly pure, our vision is clear of distraction, so we can see him clearly. He also reveals himself to true seekers in a deeper way than the general public. We typically act in a similar way where we have one layer of expression for acquaintances, but deeper layers for true friends and loved ones who are actively seeking us and are pure in their hearts towards us. Same with God. Some are pure in heart in the sense that that they are naive. They haven't been impactfully confronted with the trials and realities of the evils of this fallen world. They are often looked down on by the religious and have the potential to only be followers because of their naivety. God will reveal himself to these people as well and make their purity a manifestation of true knowledge and revelation. There is also merit to being pure in heart from a secular perspective. Some will follow God's ways purely without specifically being involved in religious traditions. So again, there are many ways of looking at what this pure in heart is, but they are all uh, applicable in this sense. Again, as long as you don't misinterpret or do things that contradict other scripture, like the uh, mercy being not calling out sin within the church, uh, then there are multiple ways of interpreting these that are very helpful when you look at all of them. So when you look at Romans chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, it says, For it is not merely the hearers of Torah whom God considers righteous. Rather, it is the doers of what Torah says who will be made righteous in God's sight. For whenever Gentiles who have no Torah do naturally what the Torah requires, then these, even though they don't have Torah, for themselves are Torah. For their lives show that the conduct the Torah dictates is written in their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness to this, for their conflicting thoughts sometimes accuse them and sometimes defend them. So again, it's about action. Being pure in heart is not just some inward thing. It's not just a feeling. It's also the actions. It's the whole package. And again, it is not just following religious traditions. You could not have any of the religious traditions, but truly be following God's principles. And that is acting out Torah, as uh, Romans says. So when we switch over to looking at the state... Well, of course, the state is anything but pure. It has hidden agendas and always has the good of itself as a top priority, regardless of the stated goal of an action. It uses manipulation and control over its population. There is no attempt to have God's priorities as their own, only a facade of God's principles to cover up the real priority, which would be itself. Politics, by its very nature, is not pure. If our intentions and actions should always be in line with God's ways, without ulterior motives, then we should not be using a method that itself isn't in line with God's ways. Our loyalties are to be to God, not the state or society writ large. And so when we uh, live out this beatitude, it is just not something that is conducive to being a part of the state or supporting the state, we see the state does not act just by its very structure. It can't act according to 
uh, this beatitude. It, it can't do it because that's just not what the state is designed to do. That's not what it does. That's not the action that it produces. That's not how its motives are incentivized. It's just not. Now, the next beatitude would be Matthew 5, verse 9. How blessed are those who make peace, for they will be called sons of God. Now, peace is to be made, made and maintained by believers. There is a call to action in that it's not just blessed are the peaceful, but rather those who make peace. This peace has many fronts. We are to make peace inwardly within ourselves so that we are not constantly battling our own minds and emotions. We are to make peace between ourselves and others and between others in general. We are to be at peace with God not incurring judgment and practicing rebellion, but in communion with him as we follow his nature of peace and grace. The church is to be a place of peace without conflicts inside buildings or among members. To do this well, we must internalize all the other Beatitudes prior. In doing so, we will truly be loving our neighbor as we make peace on every level. There is a danger, however, that concentrating on peace means we are passive and permissive. Again, like that idea of mercy that was incorrect. This is not so. We are to battle against ungodliness and put on the armor of God to fight powers and principalities. That's what we're told to do in Scripture. While we advocate physical peace among all humans, we are not in league spiritually and morally with the kingdom of man. Again, that's the difference between the state and the church, but also just in general, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Yeshua makes it clear that there is inherent conflict and division that comes with citizenship in the kingdom of God. This would be Matthew chapter 10, verse uh, 34 through 36. Don't suppose that I have come to bring peace to the land. It is not peace I have come to bring, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, so that man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So it, I guess, gets a little confusing at times when Yeshua specifically says that we are to make peace and then says, hey, I actually didn't come to bring peace to the land. I came to bring discord. Uh, well, that's not exactly the way it is. And obviously here, he is not talking about bringing a war or fighting or anything of that nature. His point is that his coming and his teachings, they, they create a distinction between two groups, the path of light and the path of dark, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And those groups are not necessarily the same as family ties as friends, as people that live in the same village or are the same nationality or ethnicity, that's not the case. The point that he makes is that this division will come between people and their parents, between uh, kids and siblings, between just all kinds of very close relationships. And that is something that is just going to be inherent with following his teachings, that he is making a clear distinction that there is a path of light and there is a path of darkness. And if you follow one, you will automatically be put at odds with the other. They are not compatible. There is only one way. You cannot love both God and money. You can't love both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. You can't be... Ah, yeah. 
I, I don't know that it'll go quite there, but uh, I think you could probably uh, put in some more things there and make some more comparisons between maybe the state and the church. But when we move on from that and look at the state, peace is not always sought by the state, quite obviously. Even when peace is the stated goal, it is often in the context of, oh, we need to go to war with, insert the enemy name here, to create peace in the region and bring peace to the people. So, yeah, they're going to war to bring peace. That is not really making peace. By God's definition, war is not a viable way to make peace. The state has a monopoly on the use of force, and they use it quite often. When force is not used to create submission, coercion usually is. While coercion is often physically nonviolent, often but not always, it is not peaceful in God's eyes. It is not uncommon for the state to stir up division and conflict for their own gain or use controversy to gain power, support, and votes. Politics is inherently not peaceful. It is said the war that war is politics by other means. Politics could also be said to be war by other means. So with this, Christians are not to support war. This would be the opposite of making peace, quite obviously. We are told by Yeshua not to resist the evil man, and in doing so, submitting to and loving our enemies, we become children of God. So, although that is hard and sounds foolish from man's perspective often, uh, that's what we are told to do. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 45, it says, You have heard that our fathers were told, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you not to stand up against someone who does you wrong. On the contrary, if someone hits you on the right cheek, let him hit you on the left cheek too. If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack for one mile, carry it for two. When someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something from you, lend it to him. You have heard that our fathers were told, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Then you will become children of your father in heaven. Then Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but try to do what everyone regards as good. If possible, and to the extent that it depends on you, live in peace with all people. Never seek revenge, my friends. Instead, leave that to God's anger. For in the Tanakh it is written, Adonai says, Vengeance is my responsibility. I will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap fiery coals of shame on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So again, it's talking about this uh, difference in how you handle things. And the overall theme, which is the entire Sermon on the Mount, is to love your neighbor. That is the whole point of all of this. And participating in something related to war or politics or something that is not loving in its very nature would be the opposite. And at the end of that Romans chapter 12 set of verses, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. When you give in to those things, you are being conquered by evil. When you focus on vengeance, as is listed there, or hating your enemy or going after them or pursuing uh, non-peace, which would be war and arguably politics, uh, those things are not in line with making peace and not in line with the kingdom of God according to biblical principle. 
And uh, again, as it is defined here, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. That is a reference to if you do these things, if you're focused on vengeance upon your enemies, you're being conquered by evil. And instead, you are to conquer evil with good. You're to treat your enemies even with love. So our goal is to conquer through love. We do not initiate or further conflict. We initiate and further peace. One day, peace will reign over all. This is the culmination of God's kingdom. As children of God, we spread his peace as we spread his kingdom. That is what we are told to do. The next section is Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. How blessed are those who are persecuted because they pursue righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Living out God's principles is always against the kingdom of man. Persecutions will come. There is a chance to reap heavenly rewards if our pursuit of righteousness is pure. Even those who Yeshua is persecuting for their impure pursuit of righteousness, in quotes, have the opportunity to turn from their hypocritical ways and join the kingdom of God. Even the Pharisees and the people he calls out. Yeshua says, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is present tense. There are many aspects like joy, contentedness, community, and peace that are enjoyed in this present life, even though, even through trials and persecutions. Having the opportunity to be persecuted for God's sake is truly a blessing. It makes us stronger. This is the embodiment of Yeshua's example. This is the true test of our faith. And Paul talks about this uh, multiple times as well. Now, when we uh, look uh, at the, I guess, the, the way that this happens in the present time within our lives, uh, the best resource that I can think of would be Tolstoy. If you read uh, Tolstoy, he is very focused on that to the extent that I think he uh, overshadows everything else and uh, possibly doesn't really believe anything else beyond that, but that it is, I think he, if I remember right, um, he views it as being the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is that everything is to be, um, I guess, manifested within our current lives, not in some future heaven. And so, uh, again, like most of these other things, I believe that they are both true, and both have value to look at. But uh, he would be a really good resource as long as you keep in mind that he is not perfect. And anybody that you read, especially related to theology, uh, make sure that you just don't uh, scarf it all down and believe everything you read. It is definitely something where you need some discernment. Now, the state, however, is persecuted because of its corruption, not because it seeks righteousness. It is also the entity often doing the persecuting against Christians and others. Politics is constantly stirring others to persecution, by its very nature. Whether it be citizens against other citizens, or party against party, or country against country, the state is living out the anti-nature of God, with no regard for a pursuit of godly righteousness. The kingdom of God will never be in the hands of the state. Attempting to avoid persecution from the state is not our goal. Rather, our goal is to suffer persecution well, and in doing so, be a witness for God. Some attempt to use the state to avoid persecution from others, or even from the state itself. This is not the way of God's kingdom. That's not what the scripture says. It doesn't ask for kindness and special treatment from the kingdom of man. 
God's kingdom pursues true righteousness and accepts the accompanying persecution, knowing that in reality, this is actually spreading the kingdom further, faster. Now, the next verse would be Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. How blessed you are when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of vicious lies about you because you follow me. Rejoice, be glad, because your reward in heaven is great. They persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. So I think this will be probably our last one. Yeah, I think we have time for this. Uh, Let's continue on since it is in the same theme as the last one, and it's the last section in this Beatitude section. So there's a shift here from speaking of them to you. It was, how blessed are they, and now becomes, how blessed are you? Yeshua was first teaching the disciples in reference to the crowd or speaking to the disciples and the crowd. Uh, It's not very clear which one it is. But either way, he seems to be focusing the Beatitudes in relation to the poor, the downtrodden, the mourning, etc., who were coming to him and following him. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 24 through chapter 5, verse 2, Word of him spread throughout all Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill, suffering from various diseases and pains, and those held in the power of demons, and epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Huge crowds followed him from the Galil, the ten towns, Jerusalem, Yehuda, and Ever Haryardin. Seeing the crowds, Yeshua walked up the hill. After he sat down, his Talmudim, his disciples, came to him, and he began to speak. This is what he taught them. So, with that in context, that's the beginning of the Beatitudes. Now, Yeshua, whether speaking to only the disciples or also to the crowd, is telling them what becomes of one who follows his ways. It is no longer a message of, I have come to all and all are welcome in the kingdom, but is now a message of those who join the kingdom will experience and continue. When one follows the previous Beatitudes, the natural result is what is described in these verses. Insults, persecution, lies, and more will beset all who leave the kingdom of man in favor of the opposite character, loyalty, goals, and morality of the kingdom of God. However, even though the opposite is there, the rewards are too. One will receive the individual rewards listed throughout the Beatitudes in the same way that the prophets who were similarly persecuted have. This is definitely a cause for both trepidation and rejoicing. The prophets were often jailed, ridiculed, uh, marginalized, banished, and martyred. They are also considered the greatest followers of God in all history, with very high standing in heaven. When the state is considered, we see that it most often is the party on the opposing side of followers of Yeshua. When biblical values are argued for through political discourse and activism, they are often met with insults and other aspects of weaponized language. Often a narrative is constructed against these ideals and propaganda is very common. No actions should be taken against one who lives righteously or rejects evil. However, often there is a conflict between the state and the Christian, and the state is known to persecute in many ways, such as arrests, censorship, fines, uh, supportive programs that are on the opposing side. While we are never to lie, the state operates as an entity of secrets and lies. That's what it does by its very nature. Labels such as unpatriotic or traitor, conspiracy theorist, religious extremist, and the like are often used by the state to describe those who stand firmly for God's principles and against aspects of the state that contradict these principles. 
Now, there are people that are um, very unpatriotic and conspiracy theorists and religious extremists, and there are those that are those things in a negative sense, uh, but also plenty that are in a positive sense. Now, when you look at Luke, and we talked about how there are these two versions of the Beatitudes, in a sense, probably two different sermons, but speaking on the same things. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 22 through verse 26. How blessed are you whenever people hate you and ostracize you and insult you and denounce you as a criminal on account of the Son of Man. Be glad when that happens. Yes, dance for joy, because in heaven your reward is great. For that is just how your fathers, how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already had all the comfort you will get. Woe to you who are full now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and cry. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for that is just how their fathers treated the false prophets. Yeshua's message recorded in Luke uses language that is even more fitting to apply to the state. Denouncing someone as a criminal is a state activity. The fathers that are quoted here who treated the prophets so unjustly were almost always government officials or kings themselves. Woe to you who are rich, but one of the main goals of the state is to build wealth. Woe to you who are full now, but the state's goal is productivity and material position. Woe to you who are laughing now, but the state nearly always has the last laugh and is rarely the worse off when compared to anyone opposing it. Those in power are in the positions to laugh now, not to mourn and cry. The state is always pushing bread and circus to keep the citizenry happy and content, to keep them laughing, distracted, and entertained. Citizens are encouraged to have pride in their country, to praise their institutions, to speak well of the state. Criticism is typically funneled to a focus on specific people or isolated cases and not allowed to be extended to the institution of government and the bureaucracy as a whole. Again, it's divide and conquer. It's the Republicans versus the Democrats, the progressives versus the conservatives, the anti-abortion versus the pro-abortion, you know, whatever it is. It's picking sides, pitting them against each other, and it's never uh, pitted as the individuals against the state, which is really the true thing. It's statism versus non-statism. It's not an individual party or a scale within the statist, um, uh, I guess, uh, graph line, however you want to look at that. The state itself is not playing the role of the prophet. The Christian should be. The implication here is that the Christian who firmly stands for God's principles will come into conflict with the state in some way at some time. We are still to focus on the eternal and spiritual perspectives, even if our stand puts us in a negative material position due to this conflict. Again, it is future and present. Both apply. Now, there is a difference between being happy and having joy. Because uh, you, well, it is said in the beginning of this verse that you should dance for joy. And at the same time, it says, woe to you who are laughing now. Well, that doesn't, you know, that seems to be a bit of a conflict. But no, there is a difference between being happy and having joy. Having joy in a biblical sense, like Paul while he was in jail, is something that is not a, an emotional response to your current material position. That is not it. That would be more happiness. And that changes. The feelings are fickle, emotions are fickle, and on. But joy, true joy, is found in God and through our standing with God. And that is regardless of our material position. That is a totally different thing. So we can have joy in our present life 
and look forward to reward from a heavenly perspective. Those can both be true. The progression of the Beatitudes is worth noting as well. They begin with a recognition of our lack of spiritual ability. This leads us to mourn over our sin and that of others. We then become more patient and controlled and seek personal righteousness. This leads us to show mercy to others and brings us to a level of purity of heart. We now are focused on peace and love, but are also now so different from the surrounding world and kingdom of man that we become persecuted and insulted. Regardless of the earthly results, we are to be the person who seeks and lives out the positive aspects of these traits while shunning the negative applications. If, even if, we do have the negative manifestation within us, the kingdom of God is still open to us, and we should seek to work through the spiritual journey with the focus of righteousness at the end. While it can be easy to dismiss others or ourselves for a lack of spiritual maturity or fruit, we must remember that those who are forgiven much love much. Those who still give despite their poverty give the greatest gifts. Yeshua came for the sick, not just for the healthy. In Luke chapter 7, verses 41 through 50, it says, A certain creditor had two debtors. The one owed ten times as much as the other. When they were unable to pay him back, he canceled both their debts. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Your judgment is right, Yeshua said to him. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me water for my feet, but this woman has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but from the time I arrived, this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but this woman poured perfume on my feet. Because of this, I tell you that her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, because she loved much. But someone who has been forgiven only a little loves only a little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. At this... Those eating with him began saying amongst themselves, Who is this fellow that presumes to forgive sins? But he said to the woman, Your trust has saved you. Go in peace. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. As he taught them, he said, Watch out for the kind of Torah teachers who like to walk around in robes and be greeted deferentially in the marketplaces, who like to have the best seats in the synagogues and take the places of honor at banquets who like to swallow up widows' houses while making a show of davening at great length. Their punishment will be all the worse. Then Yeshua sat down opposite the temple treasury and watched the crowd as they put money into the offering boxes. Many rich people put in large sums, but a poor widow came and put in two small coins. He called his Talmudim to him and said to them, Yes, I tell you, this poor widow has put more in the offering box than all the others making donations." For all of them, out of their wealth, have contributed money that they can easily spare. But she, out of her poverty, has given everything she had to live on. Then finally, in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Later, Yeshua went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in his tax collection booth, and he said to him, Follow me. He got up, left everything, and followed him. Levi gave a banquet at his house in Yeshua's honor, and there was a large group of tax collectors and others at the table with them. The Prushim and their Torah teachers protested indignantly about his Talmudim, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It was Yeshua who answered them, The ones who need a doctor aren't the healthy but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but rather to call sinners to turn to God from their sins. 
So that wraps up the Beatitudes. I hope those last sets of verses are encouraging because I guess we can get down pretty easily on ourselves or look down on others because of uh, how far we are from truly following all of these Beatitudes. But in reality, that is who Jesus came to teach. That's who he calls to follow him. That's, that is the person, those are the people that God is here to help. And the more that we need him, the more that we love him. And the more we can show love to others out of that love that's being shown to us. The, he forgives us, we forgive them, and it is this circle where we are showing light from God that is being shown down on us. And so definitely not something to be uh, down about, that, oh, I'm so far from what these Beatitudes say, but also it's not something to be casual about, and, oh, well, you know, no one really lives this out, so we'll all be okay, we're forgiven. No, the point is that we still pursue righteousness, we are still pursuing these things, but we're doing so without getting totally depressed that we don't actually match up to all of them in every way. So that'll be it there. We will continue next time with salt and light. And I am not sure how far we'll get with that because that's a pretty long section, I think, but we will get there next and continue on. So Thank you very much for listening. I am still personally in the middle of a million things going on. And so, yes, this is still a podcast that is coming out on a relatively irregular basis. But when I can get to it, I take the time and I do it as much as I reasonably can. So I am trying to make that as consistent as possible. But thank you very much for uh, not giving up, even though it is not something coming out every week or even every other week anymore. Um, I am still trying to do that best that I can. Also, if you've heard noises throughout uh, this episode randomly, there is a guinea hen that's in the room with me that got attacked and injured last night that is in a cage. And so if you hear scratching and scuttering around and things like that, that would be the guinea. It, for some reason, has not been squawking very loudly, so that's a benefit, at least. But uh, that's what that is. So... Uh, with that, I, I guess I can mention I, I just saw an email today that uh, I had my very first uh, episode get canceled because of, uh, they said, medical inform- uh, misinformation. So I am not quite sure what that is. I actually have talked more about things that they would consider medical misinformation than the random episode that they chose. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But that's just on YouTube. Um, I, I don't think most people listen on YouTube, but hey, maybe they do. I don't know. There are plenty of YouTube subscribers as well, but I know there are a lot more downloads through uh, various podcast apps. But either way, I thought that was interesting. So thank you very much for those who are supporting this show, especially financially through Patreon or Subscribestar. Really appreciate that. That's how I pay for the hosting and all the various things. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Thank you for participating. If you have any questions or comments or anything whatsoever, feedback, I would love to hear from you. So feel free to reach out. My email is ourfoundations at protonmail.com, which is also in the show notes. So with that, I'm out. Peace. This has been Our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye-bye.